Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode 7. This time we are talking about Diamonds Are Forever from 1971, starring, once again, Sean Connery as James Bond. This is Brian. And this is Edmund. And Gary. Gary, why don't you give us a little bit of a plot set up here? Sure. Well, basically, um, Bond is, uh, is dispatched on a mission to uh, figure out a diamond smuggling operation because it appears that a large number of diamonds are being smuggled out of mines in Africa and being shipped to Europe, and then who knows from there. And he's basically being sent to find the pipeline and track it to its, uh, to its leaders, essentially, to take down whoever's, whoever's behind it. And so he basically travel hops from Amsterdam, from to Amsterdam, and then on to... Uh, well, it's where pretty much most of the movie plays out. And, uh, of course, he uncovers the various different levels of the ring, moving from one person to the next, uh, all the way up to the mysterious plot at the top of the And uh, it's, it's an entertaining movie. Um, but that's basically it. I mean, it, 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 I'm not going to ruin the plot twist at this point. We can discuss it later. Uh, the movie starts, however, in the opening sequence prior to the uh, title credits with the leftover business, or it really seems like leftover business in the previous movie. As uh, people will no doubt remember, uh, Bond, like, like Tracy, was murdered on their wedding day by Blofeld. So obviously this is upset on someone. And so in the first few scenes of the film, we get Sean Connery um, hunting down leads to find Blofeld so that he can in revenge. And it's very interesting. You don't actually see Connery's face for the first of the encounters. Uh, several of these encounters just moments of violence where he's either beating people up or in one case, strangling uh, a woman, which is very uncomfortable. But uh, it shows you that he can be a lot more brutal than he is sometimes. Yeah, it was sort of an interesting opening sequence there. Yeah, you don't actually see Bond's face until they can do sort of the proper setup and you see, you know, the the hero shot of Bond and his big introduction, which is sort of interesting because it's a little bit like they're deliberately reintroducing Sean Connery as Bond because he was not in the previous film. You know, I should say that this was actually, I think when I saw this, I might have been like 10 or 11, or maybe 11 or 12, and yeah. I was actually surprised that it was Blofeld back from the dead. Right. <laughs> I think I can actually say like, wow, I didn't expect that. That was cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now, of course, like, you know who the villains are well ahead of the film. There's no such oh, yeah. thing as a surprise in a James Bond movie. Yeah, yeah you don't. You don't yeah, it's, it's, it's a comic book role. You didn't actually see the body. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, no, no one's surprised when Sean Bean turns up in GoldenEye. I mean, he's the second name in the cast, so yes. <laughs> he's probably going to be back. Yeah. Yeah, so you had this opening sequence where they, uh, you know, you have several things happen without actually seeing seeing Bond's face, and then you finally see him, they're doing the, the big setup, reintroducing Connery. Uh, so it seems like because he was not in the previous film, they're almost treating it like they're introducing him all over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, you have... This was the convention at the time, I think, where uh, you would see Bond without fully seeing him, you just sort of see glances, and then finally you would get the big reveal. Which is how they opened the last movie also. That's how they opened the Honor Majesty's Majesty Secret, Secret Service, with seeing uh, you know, his hand, seeing him from behind, seeing different angles, and then all of a sudden you see him, uh, and when you fully see him and on Her Majesty's Secret Service it's sort of right into the action where both of the times they introduced Connery in Doctor No then in Diamonds Are Forever it's more that you see a bit here and there and then all of a sudden you have the the big Bond, James Bond you know the big uh, sort of classy hero shot mm-hmm 
Yeah, although it was interesting with this one that, uh, you know, of course, you know, it's after that, you know, this is, you know, in the sequence of people who he's, uh, you know, basically beating up and extracting information on Blofeld. But then, you know, that that sequence comes when it's the, you know, the, the beautiful women in the bikini and sort of setting up the expectation of, you know, oh, here's here's Bond and is, you know, then a new Bond girl. But in, you know, instead, you know, even her, he, you know, tears off her top and starts wrangling her with it to get the get the get, you know, get get the next link. In the chain so you know it's like yeah, they were introducing him at the same time sort of you know playing on the expectation you know and showing just how you know how determined he was to uh keep tracking him and surprisingly his mission pays off immediately in the credits where pre-credit sequence where he finds blofeld uh now being played by charles gray who uh played dicko henderson in you only have twice to confuse yep. people even further yeah. and <laughs> this new blofeld is apparently at a clinic where he's trying to create doubles of himself through plastic surgery surgery, the better to protect himself uh, from being killed by Bond, I presume, since nobody else seems to be after him. Um, but basically, Bond defeats him rather easily. It's actually a very poor showing by Blofeld, who, who's clearly done better before in the past. I mean, his henchmen are morons, and uh, nobody can fight worth a damn there. And Bond successfully kills Blofeld by shoving him into a pool of hot, boiling mud. But now, of course, it seems there are so many Blofelds floating around. <laughs> there always seems to be a spare, right? That's the, true. The that's, plastic that's, surgery duplicates. That's true, and Charles Gray's name is fairly high up in the cast. Although I will, I will say that when I saw this as a child, I was fooled. I thought Blofeld was dead. <laughs> I actually thought he was gone and would not be coming back later in the film so when he does come back later it was actually a pleasant surprise to me uh, that's the kind of surprise that probably only a 10 year old child could get from this movie exactly yeah <laughs> which is very otherwise very short on surprises but uh, it does go into an, an interesting title sequence the credits are not uh, particularly memorable in any way other than there's diamonds and a cat in it uh, but the song is pretty good mm-hmm. um, the song is pretty good it's surely back back for her second Bond theme song. And uh, John Barry did the music, and it's a very memorable song. It's still still memorable today. Uh, it was widely sampled by Kanye West on a song called Diamonds from Sierra Leone. So it, it's like you mentioned that song to people now, and it has a whole new group of fans that had no idea, again, that it's from a James Bond movie. Interesting. It was a memorable song and a good uh you know, good choice. I think it was a, a good time for them to get Shirley Bassey back again to to do one. Doing it, they had talked about using her again in Thunderball in the very next film, but I think this was a better idea, doing it, you know, a number of years later. Yeah, and I think it's also uh, the, the song and the subject is a, a, a good fit for her. But, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, there's uh you know as you know as some of these theme songs work work better than others but this is definitely one of the ones that uh, that sticks in your head you know perhaps perhaps not quite as as memorable as goldfinger but uh you know that's up there yeah ab- absolutely now the cast of characters and the cast playing those characters in this film is a little unusual <laughs> for a Bond film. It's a bit hit and miss. We have uh, all sorts of bizarre things. We have Jimmy Dean playing Willard White. Yeah. Uh, who is this business tycoon being manipulated and impersonated by Blofeld. Basically yeah. the Howard uh, Hughes character. Yeah. That- yeah, yeah, this is a alliteratively named billionaire who just happens to be reclusively hiding at the top of his hotel. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and it was uh, sort of noted that that may have been uh, a bit of a risk for Jimmy Dean, who was, of course, working for Howard Hughes at the time. Was he? I did not know. Yeah, in, it, in his, um, his regular... Um, Vegas gig, the main thing he was doing at the time. Oh. So this is before this is before the sausage business took off like crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe this was uh, more uh, more in the music business at that point. I see. So yeah, he was there. We've mentioned Charles Gray as Blofeld. Uh, we have a couple of Bond girls. The main one is Tiffany Case, played by Jill St. John. Yes. 
Yep. She, she appears in her opening scene as, um, I think, is she a brunette in the first scene? or She starts as a blonde, she I She starts think. as a blonde, yeah. then she switches uh, yeah, to brunette, yeah, that... and then finally reveals herself to be a redhead. Not, yeah. and, and, and in the in the sort of this movie, the Bond series theme, there have always been these villainous redheads. Uh, right. you've, had, um, you've had uh, Fiona from Thunderball and then Helga from You Only Live Twice, and now you have mm. Tiffany Case. And, of course, she is the Bond girl for the film, but she starts the movie out as, as a villain. She's, mm-hmm. she's a part of the girl. smuggling she, ring. She's clearly part of the smuggling ring. She knows she's a bad girl. And uh, she is initially, like, potentially yet another one of their evil redheads. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it takes a while for it to be clear exactly where she's going to end up. Right, and, and in fact, at the end of the day, she more or less switches sides when Bond convinces her that her own side wants her dead. <laughs> her motives are very self-preservational and not, and not in any way like helping society. It's basically, what do I have to do to get myself out of this situation? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, switch to this side, all right. <laughs> She's definitely the most morally suspect probably of all Bond girls. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> more so than... Plenty O'Toole, <laughs> played very, by Lana Wood. Very memorable Bond girl, Plenty O'Toole. You think so? Yes, yes, I really do. I mean, she certainly stands out among the among the minor bimbos that have been in the film, just for looks or whatever. <laughs> Plenty O'Toole has very little scene screen time. She really has almost no scene time screen time at all. Yeah. But um, it's entertaining and it's memorable. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's actually one of the things. I mean, that, that I, I find jarring every time. That I mean, that there were actually a couple of scenes that were cut that uh, would have provided a slightly better transition when they uh, get to Vegas. And uh, actually, you know, when they, we we have this cut where you know they seem to have lost her, and you know him because Felix Leiter does show up in yet another guise. Um, the most boring Felix Leiter ever. Yes. And, is uh, this the first time you said that? I'm not sure. I think I have. I think this is the worst of them all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, even though it's, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not this, you know, it's not that actor, but I always think of him as this is sort of the, the Tom Bosley of, of Felix Leiter. <laughs> <laughs> um, he wasn't that bad, but he was just dull. Yeah, yeah. just very yeah. dull. Yeah, but uh, you know, you know, but I mean, we then have this cut to where you know Bond has magically found where Tiffany lives, and there were actually. Bit, you know, scenes cut where Plenty O'Toole actually had discovered this herself, and that was kind of, you know, and that was kind of the the, the linking part where, and also explains why how she winds up in the pool because basically, you know, she finds her way to Tiffany's house, and you know, then then uh, our our two henchmen who we uh will will need to bring up shortly was uh you know actually show up there and think that she's Tiffany. That's a that's which out. makes them really really even dumber than their their. Yeah. There seem to be sometimes. This was before Plenty O'Toole gets pitched into a swimming pool from a you know, multi-story window. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, after, actually. After, certainly. Yeah, she okay. survives that. She survives that pool. Yes. But not yeah. the next one. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she, yeah her, her and Poole do not, do not work well <laughs> together in this film. Although, although I, I, I've always loved the henchman's line. It's like, oh, I knew there was a pool there. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know there was a pool there. Yeah. So, um, so in fact, moving the, moving the action to Vegas uh, provides us with an opportunity to have lots of American-style American crooks and characters. Yeah. And, and as it turns out, they're all pretty bland, boring, and very cliched. Cliched. Oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah, the mobsters were yeah, very cliche sort of nineteen sixties seventies movie mobsters. Yeah, they don't really they don't really um, make much of an impression. So as a result, the movie ends up being largely the the, the villains that get the most screen time are pretty much Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, the mm-hmm. assassins that have been basically going around the world killing all the various <laughs> levels of the pipeline because yeah. now that the uh, the correct amount of diamonds have been shipped to allow mm-hmm. Blofeld to build his laser death satellite. We don't need the pipeline anymore, <laughs> so let's kill everybody. So I, I really don't think that was even all that necessary because once Blofeld announces he's got the death satellite in place, it's Blofeld. I mean, what, what difference does it make if, if the dentist in South Africa um, doesn't die but or, or isn't alive or the, the sweet old lady from Amsterdam, uh, from, you know, from the uh, children's orphanage? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. 
But yeah, th those are some of the more amusing moments in the movie where Wint and Kid basically go around killing the various members of the pipeline. Always with a, with a couple of lines, usually one finished by the other. They're sort yeah, of the they, they were... They were they were played like a gay couple. That was the idea. Yes, they were they were, and and I was just looking into it, and essentially, um, there's quite a number of elements from the original Diamonds Are Forever novel in this movie. James Bond is sent to disrupt a pipeline that stretches from Africa to Amsterdam all the way to Las Vegas. Most most of the action takes place in Las Vegas, where the mob does in fact run this pipeline. And two of the the more weird enforcers in the book are Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, who are special assassins that work together. And they do disguises and costumes, and they travel all over the place together. And according to Felix Leiter, they're probably gay in the book as well. So, in fact, what the, the producers were doing were they were actually, this was the most uh, authentic Fleming stuff in, in the movie. That, okay. and Tiffany, uh, that and Tiffany Case. She right. was also invented by Fleming and pretty much fulfills the role that she had in the book, which is she's a smuggler, and eventually Bond gets her on his side, and she joins him to take down the rest of the mob. Yeah, I know... Bruce Glover, who played uh, Mr. Wind, had the discussion with Putter Smith, who was Mr. Kidd, about, yeah, you know, they're, that they were gay, that they were a couple. And, uh, you know, that was something that those actors approached it that way, uh, I guess, from... I don't think it was explicitly stated in the script, but, you know, it was something that they, that they picked up and, and mm. went with. And it gave you... Uh, I guess sort of a weird comedy thing, but it was distinctive. Yeah, and in many ways, it may be in poor taste, but it's also uh, the more one of the more charming parts of the movie, to be honest. It's like, they're funny, and they make those scenes work, two of them. Without them in the movie, the movie would be a, a hell of a lot drier. Yeah, they do, uh, they do liven it up in some ways. Although they do tend to be the most incompetent hitmen around. They have Bond, like, twice. They have him unconscious. Oh, yeah. Like, go ahead, kill him, do it. And they, they don't. And then, yeah, and then instead they, uh, they, they, they stick him yeah. in a coffin to uh, cremate it. Yeah, and then, they, and then, they, and then they, they kill the wrong woman. Like, they don't even know who Tiffany Case is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that didn't make any sense at all. But that's fine. They can be foolish when they want to be and, and you know, accurate when they don't be. Yeah. Well, there's the stereotype of the old movies where you have uh, the villains using this uh, incredibly complex way to, uh, to kill people that then, of course, can be easily thwarted by the heroes. And I think that is most represented out of all the Bond films, I think most represented by Mr. Kidd and Mr. Wind. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, because I mean, the the earlier sections of the pipeline. I mean, they actually do a rather efficient job of. I mean, the you know the scorpion, the bomb, and the helicopter. Yeah. You, know, you know, you know, drowning the old lady. It's, you know, you know. No, I mean, they they do seem to be pretty good at this. And then all of a sudden, it's like, ah, yes, let's just stick him in, you know, knock him out, stick him in this box, and then leave. <laughs> And uh, yes, um, Bruce Glover is actually the father of Crispin Glover from uh, the Back to the Future okay. series. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a bit mm -hmm. of a family resemblance there, which I thought was interesting. Okay. And yeah. uh, Putter Smith is apparently a noted jazz musician. Yes, very played rarely with played with Thelonious Monk. Uh, yeah, they actually they saw him performing with uh, with a combo, and you know asked him to act in this just based on his look, essentially. <laughs> Because he doesn't look threatening. He looks oh, no. very benign and very and, nice. Yeah, but he looks sort of odd somehow. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. You know, he has the, the long but very thin beard. And, mm. you know, the sort of, you know, look that's just a little bit strange. So I can sort of see how they, they wanted to go with that. Yeah. And Bruce I mean, Glover didn't look particularly ominous, but how he plays it and the way he's always looking at yeah, Putter Smith. He's got crazy eyes, Bruce. Yeah. Robert. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Although, I mean, I must admit, this is one of those cases where, I mean, for the time in 71, in that sort of, you know, I mean, still sort of the, you know, the, the, the end of the hippie era and uh, the holdover from the beach. I mean, the, yeah, yeah, Putter Smith's look wasn't completely out of place. You know, there were more people walking around with that, that sort of, that sort of hairstyle and mean, but so, yeah, but yeah, but it's still, still just slightly off. Right. So I think those are the uh, the the main the main characters we should mention. 
what do we think of Connery in this one? It was the first time he had played Bond in about four years. Mm -hmm. And he's older. I mean, he's not old per se. He's only in his early 40s here, I think. But he just looks older. Like he yeah. aged. He aged quite a bit in those last few years. I mean, he's clearly wearing a hairpiece now, but he's he's still good he's still got an element of the charm that he always had and i think he's having a little more fun here than he had in his last film where he seemed to be getting tired of things i think he came back here with an intent to just like try and enjoy himself again yeah okay it's a bit of a different take on it it seems and uh in some ways it's it's not bad but it feels like you know connery is doing something something different with it he's trying to be a, you know bond but a different bond somehow yeah and i did get the feel uh that he was um sort of less active and less directly involved in the act in the the physical part of the action yeah, there isn't there isn't a lot of, of action sequences. I mean, it, uh, one early one obviously is the elevator fight scene with Peter Franks, which is pretty mm -hmm. well done. Yeah, that was probably the big action sequence for Connery in this. Yeah, and it was an attempt to basically recapture the magic of of the train car sequence. And to be honest, if anything, I think the elevator scene is very good, but it actually goes on too long. It, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, I it find it actually long. kind of tiring by the time it's over. Well, it was an interesting concept that they were going to take. Uh, you know, these two actors who are going to do their own fighting, you know, and both are, you know, six foot two, six foot three, you know, big broad shouldered guys and put them in this tiny little space. <laughs> so every time they're moving back to throw a punch, they're putting, you know, they're elbowing out a window. You know, it was that, that was the concept of that fight sequence that it would be this claustrophobic thing of uh, just not having enough space for them to go anywhere. And that was not bad. No, no, it wasn't bad. No. Yeah, but I, but I, but I would definitely agree that it does seem to go on a little long. I mean, although also, I mean, the, the whole concept of it, of, uh, you know, Frank, Frank's having been stopped at the border so that uh, Bond can uh, replace him and then escaping um, and, uh, you, know, show, you know, showing up at, t at Tiffany's place and, you know, and, and sort of using that device then to, uh, you know, yeah, to basically maintain his cover that, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, for that he's killed Bond. Yeah. Pretend that yeah, he killed yeah. Bond, you know, and, you know, and 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 also get the get get the Playboy reference in there again. So, uh, you just killed James Bond, famous yeah. famous <laughs> secret agent that everybody knows when we yeah, need to exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, who just happened to have a a, a Playboy key card. <laughs> There's a point later in the movie where I think Tiffany K says, "James, can I finally call you James?" Yeah. And I wonder if she if it's not like, "Oh, I finally figured it out." Yeah. <laughs> At that point, did she finally figure it out that it? In fact, it wasn't. She knows James Bond is is, is like a good guy, and so mm -hmm. when she says it, I'm wondering, like, did she finally realize that he's not Peter Franks at all? Yeah. Because up to that point, she still thought he was Peter Franks. Mm -hmm. Or, or she's figured it out for uh, for a little while by then. But it's like, you know, okay, you know, I know, I know. You know, just let's just say it. Come on. It's a throwaway line, but I felt like this time when I heard it, I actually thought, oh, he's never actually told her who he is. So yeah, yeah. He's, she's calling him James for the first time. That, yeah, that was nice that it was sort of somewhere along the way she figured it out on her own. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and also, I was just going to, I mean, in terms of sort of the, you know, the lack of action scenes, you know, it's even, you know, when, uh, you know, you have that, when you actually infiltrate the penthouse, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's that sort of, you know, daring do with the, uh, with the ropes and uh, get, getting up there. But then, you know, the actual confrontation with Blofeld, you know, winds up being, you know, there's just this sort of uh, game of wit between the two of them. And, uh, you know, and Bond trying the, his little trick with the cat, except, of course, it turns out there are doubles of the cat as well. Yes. <laughs> Uh -huh. Multiple Blofelds and multiple cats. Yes. And, uh, you know, so you know, so even there, it's uh, you know, yeah, where it's uh, sort of the, you know, the, the older, you know, more, you know, the, I wouldn't say the day, but it's yeah, but it's sort of you know, it's it's it, it Bond who uh, you know, kind kind of uh, takes a little step back now. He's you know, he's not just throwing himself into everything. Yeah, it's definitely a little different. This was uh, a point where they. Uh, 
sort of deliberately Americanized uh, the film uh, quite a bit. They had a number of of American characters, although, of course, you still have Connery and Charles Gray at at opposite ends as, uh, as British actors. But you have, you know, Tiffany Case and Plenty O'Toole and Willard White. You know, you have all of these American characters being involved and much of it being set in the U.S. And this was something where at the time, and this was sort of starting at around the time of the, the previous film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, was starting to be felt that maybe the sort of upper crust British ethos that the films had and, you know, the, um, uh, you know, comparing fine cognac and so on, uh, you know, that this type of thing was no longer what sold for action movies. Right. Yeah. Hence yeah. the car chase with the incompetent sheriff. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the first introduction of the uh, stereotypical American sheriff. Yes, for a moment I thought I had switched over and was watching the Blues Brothers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I guess you're right. They were clearly gearing this towards a different audience. Yeah, and, and, and actually, I mean, I mean it's, uh, they almost are deliberately doing that at the beginning where, you know, when they have uh, the briefing with M and uh, and the uh, foreign service, you know, the foreign office official, you know, where he he has to go through his whole, you know, sherry connoisseurship (laughs) (laughs) routine. And then they get on to diamonds, you know, and M's like, oh, good, finally something you're not an expert on. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that was sort of hearkening back a little bit to, uh, to Goldfinger. Yes. Where you had, uh, Again, the thing with the you know, the fine wines and what have you, and then going on in that case to gold and gold smuggling. So there is definitely uh, something something similar going on uh, on there uh, that they you know they were trying to sort of you know touch back to some of those things, but definitely go to um, uh, what they were trying to do is something of a a more modern action film and a more American kind of thing, uh, you know, fitting in with sort of other other kinds of things were becoming uh, more popular. I think um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service was going up against Easy Rider, which, you know, that sort of thing was becoming very popular at the time. Yeah, and well, you mentioned a bit about the similarities with Goldfinger. This is, of course, directed by Guy Hamilton, yeah. who directed Goldfinger. So there are some, obviously, it's interesting, those two scenes are, are the same kind of scenes. That's right. There was actually talk about having the villain in this be Goldfinger's twin brother. Oh, that's right. And it was supposed to end with a big boat chase over to the Hoover Dam. <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, I don't think that lasted very long. <laughs> But they were uh, in the process of casting to have a new actor as Bond uh, replacing uh, George Lazenby. Uh, in, uh, and believe it or not, they did actually have a casting discussion with Adam West. <laughs> the, there was talk about it. And they, they were fully intending to bring in an American Bond. And they did cast someone. It was John Gavin, yes. uh, who was in Psycho and Spartacus and other things. Yeah. And in future years, James Brolin was almost there as well. Right. James Brolin was one of their top contenders in future years. Like right. when, they were, when Moore was thinking of leaving, right. Brolin was one of the guys they might have gone to. Thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, indeed. So, so in, in this case, they had actually hired John Gavin. Hmm. And uh, I believe his contract was actually paid for this. That seems fair. Yeah, yeah. But they uh, they had hired him, and the studio basically came and said, "Get Connery back." (laughs) And uh, you know, Connery was going to cost more, but they figured that they would make up more than the difference in uh, in how much the film made. And in fact. you know, they did go through uh, um, 
a somewhat involved process to uh, to get Connery involved again, and uh, I believe it ended up being um, uh, they paid him a salary of one point two million dollars, which was enormous at the time. Oh, and, well, and and gave him points on the uh, on the box office. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I gotta figure he, this was he a- actually he put he uh, he put that into um, his foundation for uh, people from Scotland in the arts uh, at uh, at that point, which he was he was building up. Yeah. But I gotta figure this was not an expensive movie to make. There really wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of big set pieces. Um, they didn't go to exotic locations. A lot of it just seemed like a travelogue of Vegas, going from casino to casino. It was almost yeah. more advertising for casinos in Vegas than there was anything else in the movie. Yeah, as the Bond films go, it was not. Uh, you know, the, some of those things were fairly well done, but it was not. Uh, you know, a big set piece kind of film. I mean, they're in Amsterdam, but aside from the scene where we see her body fished out of the canals, nothing actually happens in Amsterdam. Right. At all. It's just like location, and then we're gone. Yeah, I doubt they actually filmed all that much in Amsterdam. No, they didn't. And it's it really means this entire movie takes place in Vegas. Right. Yeah. Uh, and having Sean Connery in it was in the end, what brought the sort of uh, the very definitely British style, you know, back into it and kept that as part of it. Um, And I think that was sort of what established that going forth, okay, they could modernize in certain ways, but some of these uh, classic Bond elements and the classic British style of things, they definitely should be keeping in there yeah so i think in some ways that was that was what made having connery back in there a strong part of this and a good part of this was that it allowed them to keep that you know some of those classic elements and you know keep bond going in its own direction and not going in uh you know the direction of what happened to be popular for American films at the time. Mm-hmm. But it definitely stands out as having uh, a lot of Americanisms in it and being a bit of an oddity in the Bond films in that way. Yeah. yeah although it does seem, I mean, in sort of in this, you know, the, the sort of series of films that's starting now, and the, yeah, they, they were sort of, you know, expanding the locales and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, get, getting away from the British focus. And uh, I do wonder in terms of, you know, that, the, the, you know, they were, they were starting to realize that, you know, no, this, you know, this, this was becoming a franchise and they needed to, uh, you know, sort of make sure they were appealing to the, the international audience that, uh, you know, yeah, these are films that were going to be seen worldwide. And, uh, you know, yeah, certainly. Since there's that 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 whole uh, you know that whole presumption of you know yeah all, all of all these people in all these other countries who who want to see what's uh you know what what life is like in the U.S. So uh, bringing that element into it. And certainly, you're right. The next movie takes place largely in the U.S. as well. Yeah. So this is obviously a a attempt by them to move much of the action there. True. Uh, I but I think that. this was the last time they had the stereotypical mobsters, at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the next movie definitely, they go with another stereotype for the next movie. Yes. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yeah. So, yeah, the, beyond this, the cast is, is fairly non-existent. I mean, there's some, some funny-looking people like Shady Tree and Mr. Slumber, and these are all names, I think, from the Fleming book, but they don't really make any kind of impact. No. Uh, I noticed Shane Rimmer reappearing in an uncredited role. He's a lab tech at, at Willard White's right. secret facility. Yes, and so. and so was Ed Bishop. Oh, okay. Uh, Ed Bishop, who was also in the... Uh, various Jerry Anderson shows along with uh, with Shane Rimmer. And they were Bishop, both in, in the last They were both two. in this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they were both in uh, You Only Live Twice as well. Right. Yeah. But yeah, Ed, Ed Bishop played the the tech who gave Bond the radiation detector to wear. Ah, I yeah. see. Uh, oh, yeah. And this would have been um, 
I guess just after Ed Bishop had starred in UFO, which was Jerry Anderson's first live action series. And that that was uh, first broadcast in about 70 and 71. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, but it, it uh, for, I mean, for, for those who know Ed Bishop's career, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense since he spent all those years being the, you know, the, the resident American on uh, British shows. That, uh, yeah, uh, as, as know, did when, Shane uh, River. Yeah, you know, so when, when Bond goes to the U.S., it's like, you know, it makes sense that Ed Bishop would, <laughs> would show up. <laughs> well, both of them were in sequences that they were shooting at Pinewood, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, despite the fact that they're in the U.S. for most of this. They're still shooting big chunks of it at Pinewood Studios in England. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, our uh, sort of standing cast of uh, Bernard Lee, Desmond Llewellyn, and Lois Maxwell as MQ and Moneypenny are all there, but they sort of take a back seat and don't have a whole lot of screen time. No. <laughs> None of their scenes pay off well at all. Yeah. I mean, you show them how to gamble in a casino, to cheat in a casino. That's and right, it's, yeah. It's just, that's not really all that impressive. Oh, you know, there's the whole uh, voiceover device. So that the, there is that voiceover technology that allows you to... The voice to, box, yeah. The voice box, which they were using in the previous movie, I guess, to give Jordan his voice. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, one thing that uh, that struck me, I mean, in terms of sort of the you know the the peripheral nature of uh, you know of uh, Am and Moneypenny in this movie was that uh, you know they 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 really did seem to be kind of distancing themselves from Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Lazenby, you know, where it's like you know no, he is pursuing Blofeld, but they you know re, you know re, really were were not ma- you know making any mention of Tracy and the fact that you know no it, you know he killed his you know Blofeld had killed his wife and it was almost like you know no trying to wash their hands of that previous film and just you know no we kind of have to take care of this for those of you who saw that last film but then we're going to get into this new way of doing things so uh, there was no hands uh, office scene there were no scenes at the normal in the normal location yeah they had that dinner with M money penny mm-hmm. at the border she's at the at the, uh, the cover craft and then she shows up in Vegas Oh, absolutely. Even in their normal locations, it really doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, although they have been sort of developing a thing where Q will show up on uh, in the field to equip Bond. Yeah. They've done that a number of times now. It doesn't really do much. I don't even know why they bought it at all. Well, well, well yeah, I, I mean, except the fact that he's developed this ring that I think he could probably retire on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pro- I mean, provided I the, it's, you know, it's one the, thing, yeah, I mean, provided the mobsters didn't catch on to the fact that he's winning every slot meeting. It's one for M and Moneypenny to move their office to various locations, but it's always still M's office with Moneypenny sitting outside, whether it's in a submarine or a half-sunken ship. And he must here they're not even doing their normal things when they're outside. Yeah, yeah. Although it's nice to see Money Penny in the field, it's apparently she can do field work on occasion. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and and certainly, I mean, you know, the, the you know the the requisite uh, Bond Money Penny flirting and byplay. Actually, you know, I, I actually did did enjoy that at the border with uh, you know, Bond's line about you know, well, you know, yes, if you're looking like that, we'd never leave the country or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what a tulip do? Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, and by by then, by this time, they make it very obvious that Moneypenny is just pining for Bond. Oh, yes. Um, I can't think of a time that we've, you know, by this time where it's been quite so obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly there was a certain loss of subtlety between the, you know, admittedly, yes, it is his wedding day, but uh, between that, uh, you know, that, that uh, rather touching fling of the hat and, uh, you know, tearful parting and on uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service, who, uh, you know, the, the, the rather obvious <laughs> man vocalized you know, leave-taking. Yeah, her, uh, so, her, yeah. her problem is she's up against Tiffany Case, and Tiffany Case wins every time. Yeah. I, I have to say that's one of the things that impressed me 
more about this movie. Whenever I end up seeing bits of Diamonds Are Forever, it's usually uh, the ending a lot of times. And mm-hmm. so that's like Tiffany Case, the bimbo on the on the oil rig. She looks yep. amazing, but she's yep. an idiot. And she can't fire yep. a gun. She switches mm-hmm. up tape. Well, that's not her it, fault. It's not like yeah. you told her what he'd done. Yeah. But he sort of did, actually. Ah, you're, he yeah. missed it, but he gave her the, he gave her the tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. But um, he he said your troubles are behind you. Right, but that didn't. So mean that I was did. the tape. That was the trouble. Was the one that was stuck on right. her back. That he had just stuck on her backside. Yeah, but he, she didn't know whether she he had failed to replace it or not because she wasn't there for that scene where he ejected right. it and replaced it. Yeah, she really couldn't have known. So he's kind of a little mean spirited when he calls her a twit mm-hmm. or whatever. What I guess I mean to say is the rest of her performance in the movie and her role, she's a lot, I mean, she's much better than I'd remembered her to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, really like Jill St. John in the role. I thought she was really good. Yeah. Very yeah. sexy, intelligent. Her her wit and her charm were all there, but she wasn't dumb. Yeah. And, and I really like noticing that this time. Yeah, yeah. I have some problems with the writing in this. And part of it is that, yeah, her character seems to be pretty good and you know she's very much on top of things until that last act and you know she sort of falls apart and misses things and it's like you know the um the writing for her character is sort of inconsistent yeah and some of the writing for bond uh you know a, a when he's talking to her in those last sequences, you know, he's calling her uh, stupid twit and yeah. calls her, mm-hmm. you know, and so on and so forth. And it just doesn't fit with, no. you know, but, you know, Bond in all of his, uh, you know, being, um, uh, you know, how he is and sometimes being awful towards all, you know, towards these, uh, these women who he, passes off and moves to the next one. He's all he always shows a little bit more uh, compassion and understanding to that and he's always articulate. And suddenly he's uh, you know he's slagging her off and doing it in you know in uh, uh, a very inarticulate way. Yeah, the yeah. end of Which the movie just is... doesn't doesn't fit with Bond as a a character that we've seen in the previous six movies. No, the the end of the movie is largely a mess, and I, I don't remember the specific details of it, but the whole battle sequence, I mean, they, they blew up the oil rig without having the proper film set up, or they, they didn't have the right people in place to film it properly, and they ruined, they ruined the ending, but they had no way to go back and redo it, so they just had to sort of string it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's right. When they did... Um... The person that was setting off the explosions thought they were doing the actual recording take, but it was just a, a rehearsal take without recording. Right. Yeah. And I think it was the the um, the person that was recording in the helicopter realized what was going on and started recording as quickly as he could. Right. So they so get they had helicopter the... footage, but they didn't have everything else from the actual explosion sequences. Right. And that no. didn't help, but no. I don't think that accounts for the poor dialogue. No, 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 it's true. It's true. It's just there was it was it seemingly lazy at the end there. Was yeah. this written by a new team, or had we seen? It was still Maybaum and Maybaum. someone okay. else, Mankiewicz. Uh, oh, it's Ma- and Mankiewicz. Then it was the two guys who'd written the most of them. Yeah, I think yeah. they were getting tired. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah maybe, yeah. It, maybe it it uh, it felt. The, the whole film felt messier than most of the earlier ones had, and the dialogue was generally not as sharp. Yeah, yeah. and the, rev- the revelation of Blofeld's plot as a, a space laser to blow up parts of the world it just didn't work, and you know mm-hmm. it was irrelevant. If that was what they were, that was what they were building to, and it wasn't all that interesting. Uh, I, I really feel, to some extent, once Blofeld is revealed as the as the villain behind the plot, it actually becomes less interesting. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a bit of a. a sort of been there done that thing with Blofeld and the the big massive destruction schemes and things going on in space you know the ultimatum you know it's like it felt like it was the same thing being done yet again 
Yeah, it was yeah, tired. And, yeah, and and also being done on the cheap. I mean, it's uh, you know, one thing in terms of, I mean, know, knowing some of the the background stuff of all all these other different finale sequences they had, and then they wind up going, you know, no, we're just going to do it on the oil rig. I mean, you kind of get the sense that you know they were, you know, they didn't feel they wanted to spend the money to do, you know, the Hoover Dam sequence, and you know, so you know, so I mean, it's, I mean, to me, what's always been absurd is this whole thing, like, okay, he's got this fancy sub, and then you know, except he needs this crane to put it in the water so Bond can just, you know, commandeer the crane and just... It's an ignominious end for Blofeld, really. It's it's yeah. embarrassing. You don't even get to see him die. I mean, there's just an explosion. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, so instead it's like, you know, I mean, Bond just, you know, swinging him back and forth like a pinata. It, you know, it, yes. I mean, it just makes... No, I mean, sense. you got the sense that he was enjoying doing that to him. So I yeah. kind of like the idea of Blofeld being used as a battering ram in the end, but it didn't make sense that he'd put himself in that position. So <laughs> it was kind of silly. Yeah, you know, the, you know, this guy who who always seems to have a you know secret escape route from all of his teams just in case, and and it says you know yes, take me up, put me in the water. Oh, oh, no, okay, you can't do that. Yeah, but it just it, happens to to depend on this guy operating a crane to to. To drop him into the water is yeah, it's sort of an an odd way. You're on an oil rig for goodness sakes. Can't you have a better a better way of doing that? But he does get to deliver the line. Prepare my bathos sub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, but uh, you know, you know, but it makes more sense when you hear about no, he's supposed to get away, and then Bond pursues him, and you know, and we have the you know the the big mano a mano um, battle between just the two of them. But uh, you know, but uh, for whatever reason, we didn't get to see that. Nope, nope. Unfortunately, we didn't. Um, another scene we sort of haven't mentioned is one of the other mildly amusing scenes in the movie is uh, the fight between Bond and Bambi and Thumper. Oh yeah, the two female killer guardians whatever who are basically been minding Willard White for a couple of years mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's entertaining a couple of women beating up on Bond is kind of fun to watch yeah. uh, they're different enough characters kind of the flip side to Winton Kid perhaps uh, and, oh definitely and however, I mean, it, it's easily pointed out that as soon as they fall into the water and they're basically <laughs> drowning Bond in like one move, he basically gets a drop on both of them. And on both them. of them. Yeah. 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 All, all, to take seriously. Yeah, all, yeah. All of a sudden he can hold both of them under until they give up. Yeah, <laughs> until they give up. So it's, that is a bit of a letdown because that scene doesn't end in a remotely believable way. No. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of odd from the beginning too, but it was, they had, someone had decided that it would be fun to have uh, to have gymnasts attacking Bond, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Um, uh, one of them was, or one or both of them were Olympic gymnasts, but uh, you know, both of them were competitive gymnasts. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, they had all kinds of bizarre stuff with like spinning floor routines that ended up by ended up by, you know, kicking Bond in the chest and what have you. And absolutely out, out fought him in every in every way, and he didn't seem to do much to stop them oh, until yeah. they're in the water, and then he's just holding them down, and there you have it. Yeah. And another comment someone I read was, it was like, Willard White's been locked away for like two years without any kind of like exposure to the new wor- the world. He's pretty quick to adapt once he gets out. Yeah. <laughs> There's no like trauma from having been in prison for two years. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't seem to have realized until he's told that, yeah, things will have gone on since then. And, you know, uh, someone, you know, been doing stuff with his, uh, it's you know, with his empire. empire. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, it was. That might have been odd. more amusing if he was simply self exiled and didn't even realize it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and there was, you know, certainly the, the, the plot convenience of that, uh, that, that map of all his holdings that happens to include the new one that, uh, <laughs> that Blofeld built and decided to put on the map. Yes. <laughs> and, and in the two years that, uh, someone else has been operating uh, operating all this stuff. There's only been one change. Yeah. In well, where the holdings are. Yep. Yeah. yeah. There's like I guess you have to skip past a lot. Yeah. 
Um, the last scene is also I find entertaining because again, uh, I think Wynn and Kid were probably the better villains in this movie, but more interesting yeah. than Blofeld. And the final scene is just is just a nice comedy piece, which is I still yeah. find very entertaining. Yeah. It's ridiculously silly. But when they, when when um, when uh, Bruce Glover is introducing the various dishes, they'll be dining on in his very sinister voice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's really funny. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the dessert of the 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 bombless debris. Yeah. <laughs> well, when when he basically throws the uh, cognac all over him, and he, he um, oh. Potter Smith gets set on fire. Yes. He immediately goes up like a torch. Yeah. Uh, Putter Smith did actually have his arms on fire for for that, but uh, they when he was completely on fire, that was a stunt man. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> I thought that was that was an amusing scene to end the movie with because the rest of it hadn't been all that interesting. So at least it goes out with a clever scene. Yeah, with their sort of odd comedy henchman. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this was as I see it, this was definitely uh, you know a a different kind of uh, Bond film that you know sort of sits between what we had had in the in the 60s and then what we're going to have next and is sort of a a bit of an attempt at doing something different that I think in many respects they uh, they wisely chose not to follow yeah, for me, this has long been possibly, for me, one of the worst James Bond movies. Uh, I, I did find watching it again, there were a couple of elements that I thought were amusing. Uh, some of the camp was kind of funny, and I think maybe in a way it was less boring than Thunderball, even though it just wasn't well made. Thunderball is better made, but more boring at times. This one's very sloppy, but has its good moments. Um, Though they're few and far between. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd I'd agree with that, and uh, it, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, and certainly, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, this major shift in focus of uh, you know, yeah, bringing things over to the U.S. and uh, you know, having sort of you know, but you know, Bond as the the you know, kind of kind of the, the more the fish out of water character, um, and uh, and also, I mean, we're into the '70s, and uh, I mean, even in terms of the the Bond girls, I mean, you know, I've you know, the Tiffany Case and Joel St. John sort of, you know, sh- showing more skin than we've seen. And, uh, you know, as a red- red-blooded male, I certainly appreciate that. Um, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, that definitely felt like a, ma- you know, sort of a, a, a major tonal shift and uh, not completely successful this time. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what they do with it down the road. Yes, absolutely. So I'm uh, going to agree that this is not one of the one of the strongest films they've done. Uh, yeah, this is definitely sort of on the, on the, the list of ones that I like least, I think. But uh, it, it does have some moments, and it was interesting to see um, you know, Connery's approach coming back and to see them trying some different things as they're uh, you know, experimenting in how they, you know, how they'll move beyond, you know, the earlier style, which was very much of the 60s. Yep. Okay, so uh, if there's nothing else, guys, let's wrap this up. Okay. So thank you for listening. Next time, James Bond will be back in Live and Let Die. The new guy next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Till next. Brian speaking. Take care, folks. This is Gary. Have a nice time. And this is Edmund. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.